Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today we're getting an opportunity to preview the upcoming Nebraska Future Ready Conference, which will be taking place on June 12th and 13th this year uh, by showcasing one of uh, the speakers that we've invited in to be a part of that event. And so I'm grateful uh, to Tom Bober, who is a school librarian and district library coordinator for Clayton School District in the suburbs of St. Louis. For joining us today as he's going to get a chance to share a little bit about his backstory and give us a preview of some of the content that will be shared as a part of that conference because uh, it is one that I know across Nebraska our school librarians circle on their calendar each year and look to be a part of and so grateful uh, that Tom will be able to help lead us in that space and so Tom first of all welcome to the podcast. Thank you good to be here. Yeah and we're excited to learn a little bit more about you and your work so if you would could you kind of start us off with a little backstory. Yeah, I can kind of give you like my professional backstory, which is I've been in education now over 20 years. I started my first years as a classroom teacher. I spent six years in fourth and fifth grades with students in a couple of different districts and loved that. But at that time, I was really getting into tech and loving what tech had to offer. And so there was a position that opened up within my district that was described as an instructional technology specialist. And so I was able to stay at a building level and work with teachers and students to incorporate technology into the learning that was happening. Seemed like a perfect fit for me, so I leaned into that space and ended up in that position for seven years, moved to another district in the meantime. And as those years went on, I noticed that I was missing one thing, and that was books. And I was missing talking with kids about books and talking with kids about reading and realized that the library would be a perfect fit for me because I could still dabble in that tech. I could lean into what I was missing. and just so happened that as I was working on my library degree, a position opened up within the same building that I was already in. So I've been lucky enough to be in my school as the school librarian for 13 years now. Although one of those years in the 15-16 school year, I actually moved out to Washington, D.C., and I was still a librarian, but I was working as a teacher in residence for the Library of Congress. So a lot of my work there during that year and the work before that and the work after that with that within that context is is really what's bringing me to work with all of your great librarians this summer. Wow, what a unique opportunity as well to be able to work as a teacher in residence there at the Library of Congress. And uh, I'm curious to know, I didn't know that was even a thing. How did you come to understand that was an opportunity and then lean into it? So a couple of years earlier, I had gotten a random email from the Library of Congress and they were doing a summer teacher institute, which they're back to doing in person now. And I was able to go there for a week as an attendee and learn about what the Library of Congress had to offer. I'm going to sometimes call it just the library because that's what they call it, all in <laughs> capital L, T, capital L, the library, uh, which in some ways is is legitimate. But uh, I learned everything that they had, or 
a lot of what they had to offer and started to really incorporate it into what I was doing in my library with my work with my students. One of the people who gave those sessions that summer was the person at the time who was the teacher in residence. And then other people were employees of, of the Library of Congress. So I knew that this was a position and it just so happens that the next year they offered kind of a variation on that same week and and I begged and pleaded and they let me come back for another week. There was a new person in as teacher in residence at that time. And I had a suspicion that it might be something I could be interested in. And she was kind enough. Her name's Rebecca Newland. She's actually a librarian in Virginia. She spoke with me and gave me her background of what brought her there and what her experience was like. And it gave me the pathway to think that that was something I could do too. applied and, and was lucky enough to, to get the opportunity. Well, and I realize I'm going off script here a little bit, but I'm going to lean into this because I'm fascinated. What did that role entail as you were teacher in, in residence at the library? I was working with what at the time was called their educational outreach department. It has a different name now, but there were about eight individuals in that office. There was actually another teacher in residence with me. His name's Trey Smith. He's a, by origin, a science teacher. He's out of Philadelphia, still in touch with Trey. He's a wonderful person. And what Trey and I did was, was really twofold. We provided the educational outreach division and other areas of the library, a educator's perspective. What's going on in education right now? What are people needing? What are the talking points? And so we would provide that perspective in a lot of different realms. I sat in on more interesting meetings than I could ever count or rehash with you. The other thing that we did was really promote the library's materials to educators. So I did that through attending conferences and I would be giving presentations or in exhibit halls. I did a lot of writing for the library, wrote a lot of blog posts for them, wrote some articles for uh, different magazines, like one that is published through NCSS, and gave presentations for the library, both virtual and in person. So a lot of promotion, a lot of perspective. And then also, I think what it did was it bringing a person in every year like they continue to do, just continually brings that new perspective into that small division and brings up new ideas and new ways that these historical documents can be used with can be used with students. And there are things that I ideas I came up with there that then I came right back to my library and used with my students or ideas that I was just kind of formulating during my year there that I came back and came to fruit that they that idea came to fruition with my students. So one thing for me that I really appreciated about it, and I know I'm going beyond your question, but that year really paid itself forward in my life professionally because it gave me the opportunity to bring so much more into what I'm able to do in my library with my students, with my classroom teachers that I collaborate with. And one thing that I realized really early on was that I wanted to share as much of that as I could with other educators, primarily librarians. And again, it's one reason that I'm so excited to be getting an opportunity to share and, and work with, with your librarians coming up this summer. 
Wow. It sounds like a real beautiful reciprocity there where you're able to um, not only be a part of that program and learn what they have to offer, but then uh, bring your, your unique perspective that comes from your experiences in your local context and then to pay that forward. And uh, we're grateful that you're going to get a chance to pay some of that into Nebraska, some of that learning and some of those experiences uh, since that time. Uh, and so for uh, those that are interested in a deep dive on this, definitely check out uh, the Future Ready Conference. But we'll, we'll kind of uh, give a little bit of a teaser here, right? Like some talking points uh, about where that session will go further. Uh, but yeah, Tom, what were some of those key takeaways? Yeah. So what I've done over the years, and I'll be doing two sessions at the conference, at the Future Ready Conference. And not that I'm going to speak directly to these takeaways, but I think everything that I'm going to be sharing speak towards the benefits that I see of bringing primary sources, historical documents into the work that you do with students in their learning, or at least that I've done with students in their learning. So five things that I've seen as true benefits. Uh, the first one is it gives students a framework to think independently. I think something that we always are looking for students to do, that independent thinking, that they're really engaged. Uh, number two, it helps students ask their own questions. And most importantly, questions that they want to find the answers to. Because for me, that's going to drive learning forward and has driven learning forward. Number three, it gives an opportunity for everyone to participate, bringing these historical items in and using certain methods to do that. When you bring them in front of students, there are plenty of opportunities for all of our students, K-12 of, of every kind, to have a voice. And that's something that I really value in these types of opportunities in my library program. Another thing is that when students work with these historical items, when they work with these primary sources, they're working with items that don't have all the answers. There's some mystery there. And I love that. It leans into what I said earlier with students asking their own questions, but it also just doesn't feel too cookie cutter. And in a lot of ways, I think that it's important for us to give our students opportunities to experience that in a school setting, because I think they experience that in life. They experience situations that don't have all the answers. And so if we can give them some ideas of what it's like to handle that in a school setting, they might be able to apply that to other areas of their life. And then lastly, and I think this is really an overall piece, is when I do it right, when I do a great primary source lesson that incorporates into other, other learning and it has all of those elements in place, it really gives students ownership of their own learning. I am truly a facilitator in that process and I'm not giving them any kind of wisdom. They're really finding that from themselves, from their peers and from the materials that they're working with. So those are five things that I've found to be true as I've worked with them. This doesn't happen every time. Sometimes I do a lesson and it doesn't work as well as I would hope. And, and one or two of these might be missing out of the mix. But those are the things that I've seen happen. Those are the things that I'm striving for when I'm working with primary sources with my students. And at the Future Ready Conference, those are some of the examples I'm going to share that, that are going to illustrate all of those five talking points. Well... 
I have to say, I'm going to definitely be interested in checking those out as I will be at the Future Indie Conference. Uh, and in particular, I'll just speak from my, my personal experience. I know with our ESU coordinating council and, and our statewide efforts as it pertains to social studies, uh, we have been invested in a pretty large project here in Nebraska on developing inquiry units that look to primary sources that really, I mean, hit upon all of those. But in particular, I love the idea of students asking questions. That's definitely baked into that. I love that piece about the mystery uh, that comes with exploring primary sources. Uh, And there is a sense of student agency that follows that type of learning process, I guess, uh, whenever uh, students are able to do some of these at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm fascinated by all of it, Tom. Where should we press it a little bit more without getting too close to the session? So we kind of leave that info for the day of, but uh, I'm with you. I think, well, you know, you talked about inquiry and, and all of these approaches that I utilize, and I've got half a dozen different approaches. And then depending on where I use it within the learning and the context, of course, you multiply all those together. There's so many different entry points, but inquiry is always such an important piece around what students are going to be doing when they interact with primary sources. I, if I could jump back just for a minute, when I was a classroom teacher, I had actually attempted to bring in primary sources into what I had done. I remember it vividly. I am a person who was drawn to history and the connections that it makes with today. I feel like I kind of intuitively make those connections. What I didn't have when I was a classroom teacher and attempting to do this on my own was that inquiry approach model that I was going to pair with the primary sources. And so my students, when I would put these, what I thought to be really engaging and and interesting historical items in front of them, there was just kind of this flat response. And so that inquiry piece, and, and it really hits to that that first piece that I think students really benefit from of giving them a framework to think independently, those inquiry frameworks, I think are so important and understanding not only how those work and and how they're structured, but I think also the role that an educator plays in an inquiry model and the role that a student plays in an inquiry model and understanding that and experiencing that trying those things out as a librarian or as a teacher, I think really end up benefiting you bringing these types of primary sources into what students are doing. Would you say too that there, and this maybe gets to your the point that you made about the mystery of primary sources, but that that exploratory piece of, again, this isn't canned curriculum, sort of. It is something where they're able, as you mentioned, to kind of fill in some gaps uh, and also teaching that maybe this is where I'm trying to go, that there is a teaching of what it means to be curious uh, and not to just ask Alexa or expect, you know, something uh, to synthesize multiple sources and just present you with a paraphrased version of something. Yeah, I would say not only is it is it not canned, I think it's it's such the opposite of that, because while we do have structure behind what we're putting in front of students, right, we're giving them an analysis method that we're asking them to follow. We're giving them uh, a source or maybe multiple sources, or maybe we're giving them a, a method to go out and find their own sources. The one thing that I found that to me is so appealing, and this is, I'm going to say this selfishly as, a, as an educator, is you never know exactly where students are going to go 
when they look at that hundred year old photo or listen to that 50 year old radio interview or look at that 200 year old map, you don't know where they're going to focus their attention and you can provide some guidelines, but if we're providing that inquiry method, those guidelines should be broad enough that students have a lot of opportunities to go in a lot of different directions. And I think that is that hits towards that idea of, of that student ownership of their learning, that they have, as you mentioned, that agency to kind of move in directions that they find to be interesting and unique for them. And I'm going to be honest with you. You just had a second part of your question that I completely forgot, but that, that idea of it being not canned was so important to me because that is something that is in some ways so unique from what I see sometimes being delivered to and given to other librarians, other classroom teachers. I understand it. We need things that we can pick up and work with. Uh, I think that this opportunity to pick up and, and work with some things that also have this wide road of, of where students can move in is really valuable. Yeah, well, and I do think that your previous response kind of double Dutch covered it both exceptionally well. So, uh, w which was just to say, too, that this idea of it being a little bit exploratory and the engagement that, that comes with it. And uh, a question that I would maybe build off of this, too, because it sounds like you have experience across a, a myriad of different grade levels, uh, is that if someone were to say to you, fourth grade, fifth grade, I don't know, this might be a little young for students to engage with a primary source. What would you say to someone who might think this to be only a secondary skill, for example? Well, probably the easiest thing to do would bring up some really incredible examples of what my kindergartners have done with primary sources. <laughs> that would be, that would maybe be the first thing. I just did a lesson this week with kindergarten classes and, and I'm going to be doing a session on pairing primary sources with picture books, historically based picture books. So we were doing an example of this. We're doing one of these because we just had Earth Day. There's a book called The Day the River Caught Fire that just came out. And we were, we had read the book and then we brought in a photo from this river fire on the Cuyahoga River. It's an old black and white photo, 54 years old. There is a boat in this body of water. There's this charred bridge with train tracks on it. Two people on the boat are visible, spray cannons with something coming out. And one of them spraying down the bridge. The other one's kind of spraying in a kind of a scene off the, off the frame of the photo. Three people on the bridge, hazy background. And my kindergartners were able to really critically look at that photo carefully analyze like what's going on here and make some very appropriate connections back to that story. And so not only was it an opportunity to revisit the story, but it was an opportunity to dig deeper into the story, to extend on the story with this one moment that was captured in this one photo. So when we talk about using primary sources with, with elementary students, one thing I'd say is that we want to bring in the right type of source. I'm not bringing in the diary that's written in cursive that they need to read two pages of because that's going to be inaccessible. But photos, old advertisements, short uh, headlines or short stories from newspapers, 
visual things, those things are extremely accessible. And again, when you talk about students asking their own questions, and when you talk about that idea of, of teaching kids to be curious, that's the perfect time that you want to do it. You don't want to wait until middle school and high school to say, now let's really get into how to be curious in this historical way. No, you want to do that when they're young so that you can build upon that. And one thing that I've seen is that when I have, and, and I'll just speak for my own, my own school, my own, or I should say my own district. I have had my two daughters go through my district. I've seen what they've done with primary sources with other teachers. And I can tell you that I can point to instances where the depth of inquiry that my fourth or fifth graders have done has far surpassed what maybe was asked of my high school children. And so not only are those elementary kids capable I think what we need to look at is when we think about bringing primary sources through an inquiry method to students, we need to think about not what age they are, but how much past experience they have. If they have a lot of past experience, we can push even further and go even in more in depth. But if we've got high school students or middle school students that have never really purposefully looked at certain historical documents or looked at them in certain ways through that inquiry method, then we want to start out with kind of very basic expectations and then build from there. We want to do that across the board, regardless of the age. And can First I have one up. thing? Go ahead. Can I have one thing? This is one of the true advantages to being a librarian is because I'm not a classroom teacher who only has those students for a year and can only build them so far. So when I'm in my elementary school, I can start with them at kindergarten and I can continue to build all the way through their fifth grade year. And that to me is in many ways, but including through the use of learning with primary sources, a real benefit as an educator. Gosh, I love that. And that, you know, not to swap dad stories here, I guess, but that makes me think of my own children as well, who are both elementary aged. And in Nebraska, we learn about Nebraska history in fourth grade. And for my daughter, they were asked to also get or given the opportunity to select another state uh, to do a compare and contrast. And she got Texas and then she poured herself into the Alamo <laughs> and all because she had a little bit of agency and had a lot of opportunities to do some kind of independent study uh, because no one else had Texas. Uh, and so that was just something that she got fascinated with it as a fourth grader. So, and now my son, who will be a fourth grade next year, is like all excited to see what state he gets because he got to see how much excitement it brought to my daughter. So I, I understand from my own at-home perspective, just what that means in those contexts. And uh, you were, I feel like up to this point in the conversation, we have talked a little bit about primary sources, maybe thinking about them in a historical sense, but what does this equip our learners with the ability to do with current events and the ability to navigate the present political climate or uh, issues of the day? We'll just leave it to that. I don't have the opportunity to share my thoughts on this at the conference, but I'm really glad that you asked that question because another area that I lean really heavily into with my students and this is more middle and upper elementary and beyond, is news literacy. And really, a lot of my framework for approaching news literacy is not only the great resources that are out there, but those same inquiry approaches that we ask students to do with primary sources. So again, giving them that framework to think independently 
becomes valuable, not just with historical documents, but becomes important with documents and video and the social media of today. When we start to ask questions about what am I actually seeing here and what do I actually think about what is actually happening here? How does that connect with what I know about the world already? And equally important, what questions do I still have about this and where can I go find the answers to those questions? That basic foundation, and I think there's a lot more layers when you add in news literacy from today, but that basic foundation of looking at what do I see, what do I think, what am I wondering about is really important because what it encourages students to do, what it encourages adults to do, anyone to do, is to go beyond that one piece of media and seek the bigger picture of what's happening in the world, which I think is so important. There's so many times and so many examples that I can point to just for myself being on social media and seeing something that someone has posted. And if I had just taken that that story that they had posted or the headline and the few lines that I might be able to see from that story, and that was my only context that I walked away from, I would be really ill-equipped to have an understanding of what was actually being talked about in the bigger picture. So that inquiry method, I think, is a great foundation. Again, still more to build on, but a great foundation to be able to work through and interact with news literacy and media literacy in general today. Yeah, so it's not, when am I ever going to use this? It's daily. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah, right? Uh, ideally. So, uh, well, gosh, our time tends to go fairly quickly on the podcast as we just get into some really great conversations and get a chance to learn more. And so I've been grateful for our opportunity to connect today. And I certainly would want to point folks uh, to where they can go and register because this is a hybrid event which means whether you're in Nebraska or anywhere for that matter, which this has been this way for several years now, we've had folks join us internationally for this conference. You can go to anyfutureready.com. So any, that's the abbreviation for Nebraska. So anyfutureready.com uh, to register and it's free. So I would highly recommend everybody check it out. Uh, there's also the in-person component uh, as well. And so we'll be delivering this as a hybrid experience. Um, and so there's a little bit of our call to action, right? So if you're listening in, what should you do next? You should definitely make sure that you check out the conference. Uh, Tom, what would you offer as maybe a parting message or a call to action to our listeners to kind of put a bow maybe on our conversation from today? This maybe goes without saying, because if people are going to be attending this conference, there's probably some of this kind of instilled within them already. But I think attending a conference like this really gives everyone an opportunity, not just to learn about something new, but also the call to action is really to try something new. So what are you doing with all of this after the conference? How are you bringing it into your library? And I think there's so many great opportunities to do that, not just with what I am going to be sharing about primary sources, but across the board, uh, that would be my call to action. So for anyone who's looking to pick up a few new ideas uh, that will hopefully spark that 
uh, next implementation and probably at a good time, right? You get past the end of the school year, free and clear of all the stressors that, that come with uh, finishing out in May, and then an opportunity to hopefully um, get a little space ahead of getting back to school to think those things over before you implement them in the fall. So uh, I got to say, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for your leadership as a part of this conference and getting a chance to share your experiences with us. Well, I know we're, everyone that is in attendance will be better for it. Uh, and yeah, just great to connect with you on the pod. Thanks for having me. 